Welcome back to Silver on the Sage podcast. I'm Caitlin Lowe, your host. This is episode 17 with Mary Stuver. Uh, Mary is a accomplished career forester. She's an author of three books. She's an avid hiker. Um, and she also was a recipi- recipient of the 2019 Philmont Staff Association Silver Sage Award alongside the Philmont Fire Department. Uh, mostly for their work with the Ute Park Fire and Rehabilitation. Today, Mary is the coordinator for the Visiting Forester Program, and she was a chief architect of the Philmont Demonstration Forest. She has a pretty epic Philmont history, dates back to 1976 and 1977 when Mary went on two Rayado women treks in 1978. Mary was a Philmont Ranger. In 1982 and 83, Mary was a Philmont Training Ranger. In 1984, she was a co-author of the Philmont Field Guide. She went on several PSA treks in 2005, 2007, 2015, PSA Volunteer Vacation in 2018, PSA Fill Break in 2021, (laughs) Um, and from 2010 to present, She is the Visiting Forester Program Coordinator, as I said. So this is an educational episode. It's an episode of some really heartwarming stories and some meaningful moments. I hope you enjoy. And as always, thank you for being here and thank you for listening. today. Good morning, Caitlin. I am so excited to be here. I am really honored and humbled to be chatting with you today. So thank you for your time. Um, You have done so much for Philmont. You have so much experience and just really cool insights. So I think today will be a lot of fun. Um, Do you want to just start off with how you ended up at Philmont? You know, that's a really fun story. Um, I was an explorer scout, but I didn't really know anything about Philmont. I was also a Girl Scout, and my Girl Scout troop was um, backpacking in the Pecos Wilderness, and um, my um, Girl Scout leader was awesome. We would set up a base camp, and then she didn't care what we did all day. So um, we could go off hiking by ourselves and disappear, and I was um, up on... Um, the wall in the Pecos Wilderness, and um, it was in 1975, and a big storm was coming in. It was the afternoon, typical monsoon season, and so um, I wasn't going to go up on on the Alpine until the the storm had passed because of the lightning danger, and so I got off the trail because I don't like to be seen, and I was hiding in the Krumholtz and uh, just kind of sitting it out, and four people came walking up, And um, they were looking like they were just heading right out there onto that ridge. And I hollered at them. I stood up. I told them they had to come over. Here's a 16-year-old kid. And these were all like college kids. 
And I asked them where they were from. And they said places like North Carolina and Pennsylvania and all different places. And so I knew that they were novices and they didn't know what they were doing. And so I asked them to uh, sit down with me and wait out the storm. And I explained to them about the monsoon season and about lightning danger and all this kind of stuff. And they were just chuckling. And I was like, why? What's wrong? And I said, well, we're Philmont Rangers. And that's our regular job is to tell people these things. And so here you're a kid out in the wilderness. And it's just funny to us that, you know, you pop up and do this. And I, my eyes got really big because one of these rangers was a woman. And her name was Hannah Wilson. And she was from North Carolina. And I looked at her and I was like, do you get to climb Baldy Mountain? And she was like, well, yeah, I get to climb Baldy Mountain. And my mother had told me I'd been climbing mountains in northern New Mexico all my life. I'm from New Mexico. And um, my mother had told me I couldn't climb Baldy because I wasn't a boy and only the boys could Mm -hmm. climb Baldy. And so I'd climbed every mountain around there, but I hadn't climbed Baldy. So when I told them about my desire to climb Baldy, they um, said, you need to come to Philmont. And they told me about the Rayado program. And so the next summer I was out there on Rayado. Oh my gosh. That is a fantastic first story of getting out to Philmont. So you initially went to Philmont with the goal to hike Baldy. Um, and, and you did that. You hiked Baldy with, um, on Rayado women. Is that, is that correct? Oh yeah. Within the first few days we were on top of Baldy. So, you know, check got that one off. Um, What was really funny was um, when I finally did make it back as a ranger, um, I ended up climbing Baldy 12 times that summer because I I was the lucky ranger who pulled um, like four different max to max um, itineraries. But I also had a lot of Miranda to Baldy towns and places where I got to climb Baldy on the first day with crews. So I did that 12 times that summer. That's fantastic. Um... Do you want to talk a little bit about um, your experience on staff as a ranger or a, or as a training ranger? Well, yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. Um, I, I wanted to go to Rayado because I really had a big goal. And my big goal was to hike the Continental Divide. And I had been planning to hike the Continental Divide um, when I graduated from high school. And so... I looked at Rayado as a really good opportunity to go, um, you, you know, to get some training to to be better prepared to hike the Continental Divide. And I think um, I, I I we I when I went out on Rayado that first year, I I took my divide hiking partner with me, um, Diane Carlisle, uh, or um, at the time she was Diane Bumba. Um, and, um, we, we really wanted to, to, you know, get all ready and stuff. And I think that maybe Rayado was a wake up call for Diane, um, because she got a little bit more lukewarm about the hike. And then in, in that fall or that spring, she wanted to go, um, get married and she didn't want to hike the divide at all. And I wasn't sure I was ready to go hike the divide by myself. So, I had applied for a job as a rep Philmont in 1977, and I was super disappointed when I got a contract for Trading Post. And I, I, you know, looking back now with what I know, it would have been a great summer. But in my mind, 
I was not a base camp kind of person. I was a trail person and I had another job lined up um, because I wasn't going to go hike the divide in 77 like I planned. I had another job where Angel Fire Resort had offered me a job taking Texan families out into the Wheeler Wilderness and stuff. So I could still be a backpacking guy, but just not for Philmont. And so um, I didn't know it at the time, but I had actually flunked Rayado in 76. Um, I had gotten a uh, probably don't want to hire this person um, as a ranger. And so... um, and, and that's another fun story. But apparently, if you ditch your pack in Ute Park and you hitchhike to Cimarron to go dance at the ranch bar, that's considered poor judgment. So um, that that was how I sort of failed. So I called the ranch and asked if I could come to Rialto for a second year. So they let me back. And in 77, apparently, I behaved myself a lot better and got the ranger contract in in 78 and it was so exciting i was i i loved being a ranger i was one of those rangers who rarely ever slept in my bed in base camp because i was always hiking at 3 a.m in the morning to make an eight o'clock meeting and um i just i just loved hiking and i loved being in the backcountry and so um it was fun but I was getting a lot of pressure from my forestry. Um, I was studying forestry and my forestry professors felt that working in a Boy Scout camp was not at all good preparation for a career in forestry and that I needed to take this job that was being offered to me by the Forest Service. And so um, I didn't come back to Philmont for three years. Um, in the meantime, I did hike the Continental Divide, but I... Um, I came back in 82 as a training ranger, and um, I, I always think that that was the biggest mistake I made was applying for leadership because um, in 78, only training rangers, which are now called ranger trainers, only training rangers got Rayado crews. Um, and so in 82, I was determined I wanted a Rayado crew. So I applied for the training ranger position. When I got there, only second year rangers got Rayado crews. So if I had really stayed in touch and known the Philmont culture, I would have applied for the right job. But um, I love my training crews. I had so much fun being a training ranger. But I love what I love about Philmont was all the leadership training. And that was great. Yeah. Yes. Um, in in a previous podcast episode, someone called Philmont uh, a leadership laboratory, and it really does. It really gives young people a chance to um, test and tr- trial and error and kind of fail and try again um, in, in leadership roles, which I think is a huge part of its success. And I'm really glad that you came back, even though, like you said, you flunked <laughs> at first. Um, I'm glad you made your way back. And also... Also, major congratulations on hiking the Continental Divide. I imagine that was just an incredible journey. And then you, um, you're you an author of the Philmont Field Guide. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's a good story. Just to set the record straight on the divide, I only made 2,000 miles. So um, I had to pull out in Yellowstone. So just, just for the record, I didn't really get the whole through trip and and that always is kind of on my radar as um, something to go do. Um, haven't done it yet because life is so busy. But um, in in 1983, um, my boyfriend at the time was the associate director of conservation in charge of a brand new environmental education program. 
And we had talked a lot about the need for Philmont to have a field guide. And he knew the budget. So he knew how much money was left in this handy corporation grant um, to start an environmental education program at Philmont um, in 83. So he um, got a bunch of us together um, and, you know, he and I were going to be the writers of the Philmont Field Guide, but we talked Jeff Segler into being the project manager and the artist and Warren Smith was the editor and Mick Greenbank was our photographer. And we pulled our friend Roland Poole in to help us write the geology section because Roland was working as a geologist at the Smithsonian and, you know, just really, really a fun crew of people um, working on the Philmont Field Guide. So um, it was a, a really great excuse to be on the ranch. Um, oh, we got to check this out. We need to go see if this is really blooming here or not, because we wanted this field guide to really talk about where things were happening on the ranch. Um, so um, I happened to be um, pregnant that summer of um, 1984 and so and, and showing. So it was really a treat to like walk into a backcountry camp, um, you know, in civvies and a pregnant lady and be there officially. So that was fun. Oh, my goodness. That is I'm I'm kind of jealous. I think that's really neat. That would have been really interesting to hike. That's not something you see. I, I've never seen a, a pregnant female in the backcountry now that you say it. So good for you on, on still getting out there. I was riding my bike about 20 miles a day during that pregnancy. So it was, it was pretty amazing. I think you are um, uh, <laughs> inspiration for all of us. Um, I love that about you. And the, the Philmont Field Guide is a huge resource. Um, so Thank you for yeah taking the time to put that together with with that awesome team, and you've also spearheaded the the visiting forester program since uh, 2010. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, I I went on a couple of PSA tracks, which are just a blast and really fun. And um, I I went in 2005, 2007, 2008, and each time I went. I was aware that the the information that was being passed by Philmont staff members to participants about forestry was just so far off, and it really bothered me. And so after the trek in 2008, I approached Mark Anderson, the, who was the director of program at the time, and asked him if I could um, help Philmont start, similar to the visiting geologist program, a visiting forester program. And um, for both these programs, I'll just tell you a little bit about them. Um, a professional shows up for a week as a volunteer. And so they're only there one week. And we sign up a whole bunch of professionals so that we can fill the whole summer and all the different sites. And so um, Mark suggested that I test that in 2009. So I came out for a week in 2009 at the pavilion that we had set up with our demonstration forest. And it was fantastic. And I, um, he didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. But I ended up on several of the crew leader and advisor sheets when asked, what was your best program? And so um, it was a, a, a big open invitation to go ahead and start the program up. So in 2010, we tried to fill um, the, the, the weeks at the demonstration force. And so from 2010 to 2017, we were running two foresters at the demonstration forest. And then in 2018, of course, we didn't have a summer. 
Um, but in 2019, because the ranch was split, we had two sites. And so now my goal is to recruit 40 foresters a summer to come out and be visiting foresters. Awesome. That's awesome. I recall um, when I worked at Philmont, the the demonstration forest was um, right there by Hunting Lodge, by kind of um, Cedar Reservoir, Cathedral Rock area. And um, is that one still still in, intact, still an area? And then where's the second? Was the second one up by Baldy Skyline? Is that right? Yeah. So um, the, the demonstration forest was actually set up as a demonstration forest in 2002. And it was a program of the American Forest Foundation to have private landowners across the country um, put some different kinds of forestry activities on the ground close together and kind of link them with the trail um, so that people could come out and look at how forestry works. And so um, in New Mexico, we set up six demonstration forests across the state, and one of them was at Philmont. So a lot of times I think people don't recognize that the demonstration forest is actually part of this big nationwide network of demonstration force on private land across the country. And so that was set up and we thought it would be really cool um, when we set up the demonstration force to use some of the wood that was being cut there to build a pavilion. And so the pavilion was built as a part of the demonstration force. I just thought as, hey, this is a great outdoor classroom. Let's just set up a, an interpretive program here as well. Um, and when I say interpretive, that's not, that's not like, from back in 1950, but more, you know, today, telling about forestry today. And so, um, yeah, the in um, 2019, when we had our second North Area program, we were actually ahead of Dean um, for the program. But, you know, it was not a really super mix. Um, we, we found ourselves... Um, not meshing um, with the program that was ahead of Dean as comfortably as we hoped it would mesh. And so for 2020, um, we decided to go out onto Baldy Skyline um, Trail Camp and co-locate with a conservation crew that was doing forestry work. Um, of course, 2020 didn't happen. So we'll be doing this for the first time in 2021. And it, it'll be very different from the Demonstration Forest program because um, our foresters will be, I, I did convince Philmont to bring out some platform tents. So even though the conservation crew will be in, you know, the Thunder Ridge or whatever backpacking tents they have, um, my my guys, my old guys, decrepit, you know, they need they need their cots, they need their, their tents, they need their space. So we're going to do that for them. But it will be a spike camp. And, uh, you know, we're looking for our most adventurous foresters for that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I, I'm, I imagine it will be a great success, just like the, the one down by Hunting Lodge. And, and yeah, I didn't realize that the demonstration forest project at Philmont was a larger network of, of demonstration forests across the state. That's very cool. I did not know that. So at the demonstration forest, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the information taught to advisors and scouts is um, that like what a healthy forest looks like um, talking about maybe how Philmont is overly dense um, because of the loss of an, of natural fire rotation, identifying trees and the like. Is that correct? 
Yeah, um, let, let me let me treat you like you're our crew coming through and you have no time to spend to talk to me. And yet I've got this amazing, beautiful view of Simroncito Reservoir and Cathedral Rock. And I'm looking at you and you're telling you, you the crew leader, are telling me, nope, we're, we, we got chuck wagon. We've got get over the tooth of time. We've got to get going. We don't we're going to climb at Cito. We don't have time to talk to you. I say, well, do you have time to get your crew picture taken with this beautiful background? And I'll be happy to um, take your picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So I pull out this board and I ask them to put their cameras on this board and they go and they line up. And as they're lining up, I start to talk about forestry. You know, it'll make you smile. Let's get smiles. Everybody say forestry, right? Well, anyhow, as they come back to collect their cameras, they realize that my board is actually a cross section of a tree and it's got a bunch of fire scars on it. So we ta start talking about how before 1890, we had fires in this forest uh, on average about every eight years. Sometimes they were 20 years apart. Sometimes we'd have three fires in a row, but fire was a regular part of this ecosystem. And so... Um, I asked them, what do you think happened? And almost always they'll say, oh, firefighters. And I'm like, 1890, really? Do you know what happened in 1890 in Cimarron? The train came in. When the train, when the railroad made it to Cimarron and Metcalf Station can just, you know, really take this one and run with it. There was a market for um, livestock outside of northern New Mexico. So um, now ranchers were able to send sheep and cattle to the East Coast, to the West Coast, and they'd, they'd arrive alive and, and, and not be spoiled meat. So that meant that in the name of greed, they could put as many livestock out there, and they did. And those livestock eat grass. And when they ate the grass, suddenly we stopped seeing fires across the landscape. So when those fires stopped happening, what did happen is that the trees that had evolved to constantly be in this fire environment, so they made lots and lots of seeds, and they grew lots and lots of seedlings, um, because most of the seedlings would get burned in these fires, those seedlings started growing up. And when you start walking across Philmont, and you look in the forest, you'll see all these different ages of how in the last 130 years without fire, the forest has just gotten denser and denser and denser. And so now when we go into this long-term drought and we have climate change and then all these things, our forest is no longer the open grassy forest with big trees, but this really dense forest that has a ladder of fuels. And so when our fires come, instead of staying on the ground and burning, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 acres, they go up into the crowns and they burn the whole tree and they kill the whole tree. And that effect is so outside this range of what naturally occurred that this is why we have a, a disaster. This is why we're losing soil that took 100,000 years to develop. Um, so these, these fires, fires is, fire is natural, but fire is burning in an unnatural way. And that's the biggest threat to Philmont. So that's why we have forestry crews that are out and doing all this work to change that forest structure so that when we have fires, fires can burn more naturally. There, you got the five-minute speech. What'd you think?
I I want more. Yeah, it's that's a perfect way to engage someone who doesn't think they're interested. So in the 1970s and 1980s, Philmont, to my knowledge, didn't have a, um, a year-round focus on forest management, um, but now they do, and and you're a big part of that. Yeah, you you know you 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 think about Philmont, and Philmont is like this microcosm of Western United States. Um, a lot of the things that were happening in our country influence what's happening at Philmont and vice versa. But in if we go back to the 60s, um, you know, when if we go back to Wait Phillips and Wait Phillips providing the ranch to the Boy Scouts, logging was a part of ranching. Logging was a normal part of um, how you ran a ranch. And so Philmont had a logging program. And then in the 60s, with the influence of um, environmental movement and um, the whole emphasis on wilderness, and, you know, that was when the Wilderness Protection Act and um, all these other things came along, there was a real shift in the people who use Philmont, and they didn't like logging. They didn't want to see it. And they were convinced that Philmont should be a wilderness and and very hands-off on any kinds of actual vegetation management. And so when I got to Philmont in 1978 and in the the early 80s, I I worked at Red River Ski Area um, making snow in the winter. And I would spend Sunday afternoons with a bunch of, I worked with a whole Philmont crew, um, and I'd spend Sunday afternoons at Lloyd Knudsen's house, who was the director of, of program there. And I would beg him, I just had a, you know, fresh minted degree in forestry, and I would beg him to start practicing forestry on the ranch again. And he was like, not cutting a log on this ranch over my dead body. You know, that, that wilderness concept of Philmont was really ingrained. And there wasn't any sense of land stewardship of um, that we were having an impact by by fighting fires and that we had a responsibility to address how to take care of the land if we weren't going to have fires burning across the landscape. So um, that had to evolve and, and it really took a long time. And part of me going to Mark Anderson in 2008 with a plea to teach forestry concepts um, was I recognized that it takes advisors and and people who've been to Philmont to ask for this kind of a shift in mentality to get it to happen. And so um, it was, and, and in the country, we were also shifting. We we started um, in the late 1990s seeing these really huge mega fires on the landscape. And by 2002, when the Phonil complex happened, this was becoming a, oh my gosh, this isn't a once in a lifetime thing. This is becoming a regular part of our landscape. Why? And the why was a pretty apparent because we have we have excluded fire for 120 years, and this is the impact. And so, um, you know, the the Ute Park fire was awful. Um, I, I work with fires around the country, and I do a lot of work in post fire rehabilitation, and I pay a lot of attention to fire impact on the landscape. And across the, uh, the Southwest, most of our fires, when they burn at this um, moderate and high intensity, which moderate and high intensity both mean that all the trees have been killed. Um, moderate, the soil hasn't been as damaged as high, where the soil has just been really cooked. 
So we, we talk about moderate and high together when we we're talking about, you know, impact on vegetation and across, you know, like Las Conchas and, and Cerro Grande and, and these other fires, big fires in New Mexico, maybe 30 to 45% of the fire was this moderate to high intensity. You park fire, it was 85% of the fire was high intensity. Philmont had just not done much for so many decades that we were in such, you know, I, I knew in my heart that we were at such a high risk, but to see the impact of the Ute Park fire on the landscape was one of the most crushing things to me because it didn't have to happen if we had been more proactive if I had been more successful at telling the story and gotten people to take care of the land sooner, maybe we wouldn't be looking at such a devastated landscape. It's it's devastating, the destruction. And like you said, at 80 um, percent. But but, you know, you people like you are, are the reason it's going to improve and it is improving. Um, and we can't thank you enough. I was so humbled, so amazed when I found out I was getting the Silver Sage Award, um, you know, in 2000. It was awarded in 2019 for the um, it, it was given to me the same year as they gave an award to the Philmont Fire Department for the work they had done on the Ute Park Fire. And I totally felt the Philmont Fire Department deserved it. But I felt like a failure. I felt like I I knew better and I could, if I had been more successful, we would have had such tragedy. And so why are you giving me an award? You know, it was, it was really um, a rough, uh, a, a very humbling thing for me because I felt like I, I had actually felt the ranch rather than helped the ranch. But, but you're right. It was really fun from um, 2010 when we started the visiting forester to watch how that had an impact on Philmont and how um, kind of in, oh, it was probably around 2016 or so, he would know for sure, but Zach Seeger got hired as the first, Philmont's first full-time forester. Um, We ended up with a forestry crew. I mean, before he got hired as a forester, he got to run the first forestry crew in the conservation department. Um, you know, we had had a lot of what we called wildland urban interface treatments around a lot of the staff camps um, and had been doing that for, for several years. But now we finally were thinking about the forest as the forest. And it was really fun. But, you know, one of those treatments that was done in the conservation department around the concept of, you know, protecting the, the structures was around CEDO. And when you look at the Ute Park fire, one of the success stories of when the fire went to the ground and was a beneficial fire as opposed to this catastrophic fire was all around the Cito area where those treatments had been done. And so Philmont got to see the impact of what happens when you do treatments versus when you don't. And I think that that was really what taught I mean, that's what really escalated to the point where we are today, where there are forestry crews working all seasons and a lot of work going on. Um, I just got back a little while ago from fill break where I got to help and build slash piles. And, you know, I spend so much time in front of the computer now as a forester. It's it's pathetic. Um, but um, 
be able to spend the week out there and, and I even got to like, you know, grab a drip torch and burn some piles and it was fun. I saw some photos of that and it, it made me want to do my part and be a part of of conserving the forest and making it um, healthy and sustainable. I think that it takes all of us and it takes one person like you and I'm sure other of your colleagues along the way and Zach Seeger. It takes these the really important people to to get the rest of us educated and and inspired and passionate. So thank you for all all that that you guys are doing. Um, it is like you said, there are success stories happening, and I know it's only going to improve. Yeah, what other what other ways can people help or get involved? I know there's fill break. There's obviously the demonstration forest. Is there anything else um, us listeners can do, kind of from afar? maybe through the PSA? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've been super excited about with PSA has been, you know, PSA has helped when people have funds that they want to put into the program. For example, after the Ute Park fire, the there's a fund and it still exists for Ute Park recovery. And the way we look at it at Philmont is Ute Park recovery isn't just the boundary of the Ute Park fire and what's within the boundary where it burned, but also the work being done, particularly in the South Country, so that when the South Country burns, and it's not a question of if it will burn, it will burn, but hopefully when the South Country burns, we'll be better prepared. We'll have our forests in better shape. We won't have 80% of this catastrophic. But you know what we're finding out in the forestry world is that if we can treat about 30% of the landscape, we can really moderate that mega fire behavior and we can start having more beneficial fires on the landscape. So we don't have to go out and treat every acre, but we do need to go out and treat about a third of the ranch. And so, um, and, and that's the part that still hasn't burned yet. So, you know, money donated to that Ute Park fund goes directly into helping Philmont. And um, also if you happen to have, you know, an extra $70,000 sitting around. You can do stuff like buy Philmont a masticator or a uh, a new skitter or, you know, th- there, there's all kinds of equipment needs. And, and Lee Hughes, the director of conservation, would be happy to have a conversation with you about his next big dream. Uh, maybe it's an air curtain to burn slash or um, something. But, you know, Philmont is loved by all of us. And if we can put that love into taking care of the land, you know, it was funny to me, but it's not funny at all now that I think about it. But in the state, when we're doing these thinning projects, it comes out of capital improvement. It's the same money that's used to build buildings. When you go out and thin your forest, that's a capital improvement. That's that's changing, you know, the, the infrastructure. And so, yeah, any any kind of support. And, and at this point with where Philmont's at financially and the Boy Scouts and all that, PSA is the way to go to, to channel those funds. So volunteer vacation for building trail, um, you know, it's another good way to give back to Philmont in a conservation sort of way. So I've been on volunteer vacation once. It was amazing. Um, and I love trail building. And and I, my other, uh, one of my other passions, I just am a passionate person, is, you know, the Continental Divide Trail still. And I, I adopt several sections of the trail and I'm out doing maintenance all the time. So it was just really fun to work on trails with Philmont. And then I work on trails as a volunteer elsewhere. Fantastic. All, all good stuff. Thank you.
should we jump to maybe sharing any stories? You know, one of the, um, you know, the, the, the cool, you know, staff story is recent, you know, being a visiting force coordinator, uh, it, it meant I, I get to tag along with people in the, in the back country. Zach and I were driving up to Bobian one day and Zach's going to just crunch because I'm going to tell a story on him. But, um, you know, he's driving, of course, because I'm, I'm not a Philmont driver. And I love Zach and Zach loves me. And Zach actually takes my advice some of the time. And unfortunately, he took my advice this time when we looked at that mud puddle and I said, you can make it. And well, we did. So we got bogged down in the lower Bonito Meadow and um, we tried our dondest to get ourselves out and we couldn't. And so the environmental educators were waiting for us and we were um, we got on the radio and we really didn't want to explain why we weren't there. So we asked them if they could come down, that we had something really neat to show them. Could they come down to the lower Benito Meadow? And they kind of got on and they said, we're pretty comfortable here. And we're like, oh no, you need to come down to the lower Benito Meadow. So they left, you know, they had the campfire going, they left somebody to, to man the flyer and they all came down and then they realized that they were really the rescue crew. And we tried everything. We were pushing, we were shoving. We, you know, we had lots of people working out. We couldn't get it. And then there was this one um, environmental educator. Her name was Valerie. And she had this idea. And she, we took, um, like, our nylon rope, our 50 feet of parachute cord, um, and sticks. And we we weaved a set of chains for the truck tires out of sticks and parachute cord. And that worked. And we got that truck out of there. So we never had to call for a tow. And I just, that that's one of my favorite kind of recent Philmont stories. And it, it was surely fun that we used Valerie's brain to get us out of the mud puddle. So it's not all about brawn. That's amazing. Good for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Philmont is uh, obviously built on, you know, teamwork and relationships with other people. Um, did you have, are there any special relationships you want to talk about that you made while at Philmont, um, Philmont romances or have your kiddos? Do you have children that have gone to Philmont? Anything you want to chat about like that? You know, it, it's, if you had six hours, all of my really good friends, um, not all of my really good friends, but many of my really good friends are friends that I've had for 40 years since we worked at Philmont together. And one of the things that, um, and, and I did meet my husband at Philmont, um, and he's my ex-husband now. And one of the things that we um, did with each of our kids was we, we kind of felt like our kids would need a lot of help in the spiritual area because neither one of us were real strong there. So we had God squads instead of God parents. And all of our God squads were Philmont people. Today, my son spends more time with two of his godfathers than I do. So they were my friends, but they're really his friends now, just really, really close. Neither of them worked at Philmont, um, and they're both in their mid-30s now. But um, my daughter went on Rayado, and when she was a, a foreign exchange student in Thailand facing some serious stuff, she felt like it was her Rayado experience that helped her have the strength to get through it. So, um, you know, I'm grateful that she had had that. And then, you know, I, I definitely had a Phil fling for, you know, about five years on and off again from 78. But um, I met Dan out in 82. So by 83, when we came back for our last summer, 
we were totally a couple. And it was the first year as a ranger that I wasn't in the backcountry all the time. I kept coming out and I was, I kept going, why am I doing this? You know, it was like, but yeah, it was serious. And we ended up getting married in the spring of 84 and, um, and going out to Philmont to work on a book. Do you have a favorite Philmont tradition or legacy? Um, maybe it's something you witnessed or maybe something you're a part of. I, I think last year on June 4th, when I wasn't going to Ranger Rendezvous to talk about forestry with rangers, was like one of the saddest days of COVID for me, was I've been a part of Ranger Rendezvous for, for at least eight years, and um, I love it. I just love being there and being one of the stations and getting to meet the rangers. And um, there's so many of them at once. I'm not going to remember every name, every face, but I wish I could. Um, they're just such amazing individuals. And every I wish I could sit down with every one of them and spend an hour, but at least I get to, to work with them in groups of 10 or 15 minutes. And I love it. So um, being from New Mexico, uh, for for those of us who don't live there, for seasonal staff members, the New Mexico culture is also a major part of the Philmont experience. So, just what are your favorite things about living in New Mexico, growing up there as a as a kid? Yeah, and and I live there now. I, I'm in northern New Mexico. I live in a little village called Ensenada. Um, today, we're out cleaning up the village as a as a community. It's the same village that. Um, Reyes Tijarina uh, lived in, and he was behind the the courthouse raid in TA, and and you know so strong land grant ties and strong connection to the landscape. Um, you know, to me, it was just amazing to go to Philmont and see how people revered everything that I grew up around. Um, you know, it was like it is a special place, and and I I was actually I consider it now a lucky child. But my family moved to Oklahoma when I was nine, and all of us loved New Mexico, and so we all felt like we were outsiders in Oklahoma and that we belonged in New Mexico. And I actually went to college in Oklahoma, and I would just spend every moment I could back in New Mexico, you know, from the time I was nine. Um, we would come back for a balloon fiesta. We would come back for, you know, just any excuse. I think that helped me really appreciate New Mexico and really know that it was where I wanted to spend my life. I think like my own kids grew up in New Mexico and my son now lives in Denver. My daughter came back to Albuquerque, but not after traveling the world and being in multiple countries and doing all kinds of wild things um, that she realized how important this place is. And it's so special. It's definitely enchanting. Um, I know a lot of seasonal staff members have that urge in their heart to go back whenever they can. I have that for sure. I would consider yourself lucky for getting to to still live there and um, enjoy that for all of us. <laughs> I was going to say, it's funny that I, I do tell people at Philmont that I live in the pretty part of New Mexico. Um, it, it's a lot more like Colorado. It's It's really green and lush and um, not at all like that, you know, kind of brownish base camp look. And, and they just kind of look at me and they're like, really, something could be prettier than Philmont, you know? <laughs> but. Do you um, want to talk at all about, you have some really, I know, I mean, you have a, a lot of stories. Um, I know you had a story about discovering a bristlecone pine on Baldy Mountain. Is that correct? 
I, you know, I am a forester. I work for the state of New Mexico. I've, we haven't gone into my forestry career, but um, right now I'm, I, I have a really good reputation as being one of the um, folks who know the plants in New Mexico, definitely know the trees. And I ran our forest inventory program um, when the state had it. So I get a call from the Western Region Director of the National Force Inventory and Analysis Program, and he's gotten a letter from a person who has claimed to find pinyon pine on Baldy Mountain. And so um, he sent pictures, and we look at the pictures, and we're both convinced it's a bristlecone pine, but somebody has to go up there and count the needles. Um, for those of you who aren't tree nerds like me, a pinyon pine has two needles and a bristlecone pine has five. So it's a pretty easy identification. You know, I take the job, of course. I get to go to Philmont on work time and uh, go climb Baldy. Uh, it's great. But um, it was also, um, oh, maybe I'll admit to being lazy. I called up a friend, Chuck, who um, was manager of the Bobcat Ranch owned by the Sandia Pueblo. And I'm like, can you drive me up to Baldy? Um, you know, we, we need to spend a day in the woods together anyway. So um, Chuck and I drive up to Baldy in his in the Jeep and um, get out and we go and we find the same trees that this guy took pictures of and we count the needles and sure enough, they are bristlecone and I take samples and, you know, I can write a nice little report verifying that they are not pinyon pine on top of Baldy Mountain. Um, what was really cool that day is Chuck said, do you want to see the back end of the deep tunnel mine? Because, you know, the deep tunnel mine goes from Copper Park all the way over onto the Bobcat Ranch. So we went and we explored the other end of the deep tunnel mine. And that was just super special. So um, I'm grateful to this guy who I know who um, had it. When I talked to him about it, he was like, it was the altitude. I'm sure it was the altitude. Um, but um, it, it, it did give me a really wonderful day in the woods with Chuck. I am jealous. I am very intrigued by all of the mines at Philmont and also uh, the bristlecone pine. I mean, that's um, one of the longest living species on the planet. Is that right? So, I mean, what an incredible little journey you had there. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the bristlecone pine. And there's a couple of songs about bristlecone pine. There's one, you know, Rod Taylor sings that we probably all know, but there's a musician um, here in Taos, who's a law enforcement officer with the BLM, who's also written a really beautiful bristlecone pine song. And um, yeah, I just, I just love all of the mystique around the bristlecone pine as well. But it's also up so high that it's just always a treat to run into a bristlecone pine because it means that you're so close to the alpine. Yeah, love it. I love that. In 2015, you did, a, was it a PSA trek with a bunch of awesome women? Yeah, yeah the Solsista <laughs> trek. Um, man, did we have fun. So Don Chandler put this together. And um, many of you know Don. She's an amazing artist. My house is full of her artwork. But um, Don is... Um, the first woman camp director at Philmont. And so she got this idea. Um, I think it was the same or right after Kathy Leach. Um, and I forget the other woman's name, but Kathy, um, I'd known of Kathy since a child. She worked at the same Girl Scout camp that I went to. So she had been my borough wrangler on my borough trek. Um, so I was always in awe of Kathy Leach and she was the first stranger. Um, anyhow, there were 13 of us on this trek. 
this PSA trek for a week. And all of us had some claim to fame, which almost every woman who's worked at Philmont can find a claim to fame for being the first woman to do something because there is so much to do and there's so few of us. And um, so, yeah, it's always, it's always fun. Um, Anyhow, it was just really fun to be together on that trek. We spanned generations. We had young people, you know, Kathy was probably our oldest um, and, and our strongest and a great hiker. But um, but yeah, it was really fun. And it was neat. It was like our we were hiking out through Lover's Leap. I think we were getting picked up at Lover's Leap. And there was a, a ranger, a young woman ranger there um, with her crew teaching map and compass. And as we walked by, she stopped. And she told her crew, look at those women. You will never see together such an incredible group of women. And we had no idea who she was. So at that point, our reputation had preceded us. Well, I'm glad she, yeah, called you guys out because she was not wrong. What a fantastic group. That had to be just such a an awesome trip. Lots of memories there, I'm sure. Um, and speaking of... Um, just people. Um, is there anybody that you would love to nominate to to be on the podcast on the show? Yeah, there is. Um, my cousin is amazing. His name is Dennis Schneider. He and his wife Gladys moved to Cimarron in the 1960s. Gladys and him drove buses for over 40 years at Philmont. And Dennis is also known as one of the best amateur historians in the area. So Dennis is retired now. Um, they still live in Cimarron. But if you could get Dennis talking, um, it, so we, we need to capture his stories while we can. And he is such an amazing person. He's, I say he's my cousin. He's actually my mom's cousin. So that makes him my second cousin. But um, my Philmont experience was so enriched by being able to sit in Dennis's living room and hear stories or go up for drives with him and hear stories. And um, I had the best bus tours as a ranger because I had Dennis Schneider in my back pocket. That is an awesome nomination. I have written that down and I will do my best. Um, wonderful. Um, is there, um, we're probably going to wrap up here in about five minutes. Do you want to finish with any um I don't know, final words of wisdom or a story or what would you like to close with? You know, I, I, I think it's okay that I share this tale um, because to me it's really special and, and, and it's a special part of my relationship at Philmont. But, um, you know, I, I told you that when um, we were working on the field guide, I was pregnant Unfortunately, um, our daughter, whose name is Karen, um, like the rock pile, C-A-I-R-N, Karen Michelle Shaw, um, she was named for the rock pile because of an experience I had on the Continental Divide being temporarily disoriented for many days. Um, and Michelle was named for Mike Zinsley, who was a Philmont staff member, a rock climber, a crazy guy, and we wanted our daughter to have that crazy spirit. Anyhow, one morning, it was actually Valentine's morning, we woke up and um, that week, what, what was planned was that Saturday, we were turning in the final parts of the Philmont Field Guide and we were having a party as a whole team. And Mick Greenbank was, the photographer was going to take Karen's baby pictures because um, we hadn't gotten very many pictures of her. But um, that would happen on Saturday. On Thursday, when we woke up, um, she was dead. Um, she had died of sudden infant death syndrome. 
And so the Saturday party never happened. And of course, it took us several weeks to get our last work done. And part of our last work was putting the final touches on the references. And we had contacted the Boy Scouts to see if we could dedicate the Philmont Field Guide to our daughter who had died. And they said, no, you can't dedicate a Boy Scout um, publication. So Dan, um, my ex-husband, just amazing man, he put a dedication in the flowers section of the Philmont Field Guide. So there's a reference, you know, Shaw, Karen M., A Blossoming Flower, Dedication Press, Albuquerque, 1985. You know, the the guys who redid the Philmont Field Guide, they carried over all of the references. So it's still in the Philmont Field Guide, even though the current version of the Philmont Field Guide isn't the one that Dan and I wrote. Um, The reference is still there. So that's a kind of fun story to know the background of that. Wow. Wow. From one mother to another, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I think you have just beautifully honored your daughter's spirit. I love her name. What a fantastic name. Uh, That's also a hard, but hopefully maybe at this point, peaceful way that you get to celebrate the day of love, Valentine's Day each year, um, holding your daughter up, you know, in the light. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we had her cremated and there's a little rock Karen on the edge of the Rio Grande Gorge that I go visit every Valentine's Day. And, um, that's where her ashes are and the ashes of some really good dogs. Um, and, and, and I have a, another set of ashes that I, I, Valentine's Day was really bad weather this year. I haven't made it out there. But um, in December, I, I lost um, my latest dog and his name was Colfax. So Colfax is heading out to the, his ashes will be heading out to the gorge sometime this spring. Um, but yeah, it's... Um, it's it's just wonderful to have those connections. And um, I really do feel like the experience, I mean, it's many, many years behind me now. Karen would now be um, 36 years old if she had lived. And um, I, um, I'm i just so grateful. It's made me really appreciate every day. Um, I've learned to just embrace how important each 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 day we have on this planet is and what a, what a gift that is. So true. So fabulously true. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your heart with us, sharing that story, and and just for your time today on the podcast. This has been so much fun. It's gone too fast, um, and I, I I don't believe I've ever met you in person, and now I eagerly await um, hopefully meeting you someday in person, Mary. Just thank you so much for all you've done and for all you will do. Well, thank you, and and you guys do need to come out and spend a week as visiting geologists, so... Yes, that is hopefully the plan. We'll try to make it happen. Until then, take care and um, thank you once again. Bye. Bye.